0: All right, Romans 6 is where we're at, so you can open up to, to Romans 6, and um, you can leave your finger there and find your way to John chapter 8 as well, so we're going to kind of be in both, in both places. Well, I hope that you enjoyed your week of freedom. Rob's prayer, I'm not going to counter anything Rob just said, but what Paul's going to do is he's going to sort of add layers to what, to what Rob just prayed. Um, He's going to add layers to what he said last week. Last week was all about freedom, uh, and this week really is about slavery. And uh, before you get too much of a whiplash on that, again, sort of let let the text speak for itself. You'll kind of see what's going on with this. You may remember from last week, the idea of trying to get our heads around justification and sanctification, right? And we just sang this line that, God, you you parted the sea so I could walk right through it, something we could never do. Justification is that picture of bringing the people out of slavery from Egypt. They're up against the Red Sea and God parts the sea. And justification is that picture of them walking right through and death and sin and their enemies are swallowed up behind them. But the journey for a Christian isn't just about getting across the Red Sea and then waiting for God to take them home, right? Sanctification then is going from that point of justification and realizing there's still life to live. There's still a promised land. So they now need to live as if the battle is already won, right? But there's still battles to fight. They need to go on this journey with God, um, trusting that he's going to lead them, going to provide for them. And so that's the process of sanctification. And we're in this place in Romans where now he's speaking to this idea of sanctification. What does it look like beyond uh, crossing the sea and being saved to really go in and claim and live as we already are, which is people who've been given the promised land um, and, and many benefits as well. I want you to do something for a second. I want you to take uh, one of your hands and without hurting your neighbor, I want you to shake hands with, with someone nearby you, okay? Just hold hands for a second, okay? I don't want this to be awkward, but just hang, hang on to it for a second. Hey, here's what I want you to do. Hold, hold on to that grip. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to sort of in your brain, I want you to think about how each finger and thumb is playing a part in that, okay? Again, don't hurt your neighbor. This is not the goal, but I want you to think and feel about the grip of that, that you have. Okay, now let, let go of that person. hope you're still friends. Maybe you made a new friend. See? Uh, all kinds of benefit here. Um, here's what I'm going to do today. Uh, put your hand up like this for a second. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five truths out of the second half of Romans 6. And what it's going to do is it's going to give you a grip on this idea of freedom and slavery. And if you look at your fingers and you thought about the grip and you think about holding onto something, not all, finger is, not, not all fingers are the same, right? There's some that are more important than others. Um, I've actually structured the order of, of these truths in some ones that I think are really key. So the last one I'm going to give to you is gonna be actually the most important, okay? So let's ta- start with, with number one. And by the way, um, this will frustrate some of you who like, you can put your hand down. <laughs> It was just what Simon says, Michael, come on. He uh, just wanted a high-five from the pastor. Um, uh, <laughs> oftentimes, we'll just read the text all the way through, and I consider doing that, but what we're going to do is this. We're going to hit the text sort of like different layers of paint. We're going we're to read uh, some of it, come back to it. You'll, you'll hear some overlap and whatnot of the text, but we're looking at the second half of Romans chapter 6. And sort of big picture before we get started is this. Paul is grabbing, remember he's writing to the Romans. Consider Rome for a minute. Slavery would have been just front and center in their commerce, uh, in their their streets and shopping centers, in their art, in their entertainment, in a very sick sort of a way, right? Slavery and freedom is just a very common, easy thing to grab onto. What Paul's going to do is this. He's going to take something that's right in front of their face and pretty shocking and pretty, um, you know, pretty magnanimous. If you're a slave or free, that's a huge difference. But what he's going to do is he's going to take a truth that they know about in sort of a physical sense, and he's going to lead them into some hidden truth, right? Into some realities that are in the spiritual realm um, that, that, uh, that, that he's going to use this, this visible known truth as a, as a bridge to. So number one is this. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Number one is that slavery never stops. Again, five, five truths about freedom and slavery. So slavery never stops. Here's what I mean by that. It is an absolute myth that one wanders the earth totally free of of everything and calling their own shots. Look at our movies and our stories that captivate us. We love this storyline. I am my own person. I used to be under the thumb of, you know, a tight household, or I used to be under the thumb of a tight regime, and now I'm free. I'm my own person. I'm calling my own shots. That is a total myth. It seems that because of his very nature, men and women must be slaves to something. So we've said before that we're unceasing worshipers as human beings. We just are, We just worship. It turns out, too, that we're unceasing slaves. Slavery never stops. All right, I told you I'd be in John 8. Jesus sheds some light on this in a discussion uh, with some people, and it's really fascinating. Listen for the deception about freedom and autonomy here, okay? So people who think themselves their own person calling their own shots. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. All right, pause there. Do you see that Jesus is talking about a category of freedom and slavery that is completely lost on those who he's talking to? He's talking about a whole different realm of freedom and slavery. Who's he speaking to? Look at verse 31. He's speaking to Jews who had believed in him. And I think this is a massive sort of reason many of our churches in America and in the West in general are so anemic. We have many believers who aren't converted. They're not converts. They aren't disciples. They aren't followers. They're, they're believers. They, they believe in him. There's a certain nobility to it, and they respect Jesus, and they believe some things about him, but they don't really trust him. So that's who he's talking to. It got me thinking, what on earth would, would Jesus say to Americans born in the land of the free? Right? And if Jesus were talking to us, what kind of what kind of pride would come spilling out of our mouth if Jesus came and offered Americans true freedom? Not even true, he just says freedom. We, we would just be incensed. Do you know who you're talking to? I was born and raised in America. America! Yeah. Right? I'm free! We would be right there with them. So here's what the Bible says. Whether you know it or not, whether you admit it or not, whether your friends, coworkers, neighbors, and enemies admit it or not, know it or not, there are two categories of people. There are those who are slaves to God, and there are those who are slaves to sin. What third category is missing? It's this. Well, I'm not a slave. I'm totally free. I'm my own person. The Bible knows nothing of that category at all. All right, back to our passage in Romans. Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know? Here's what Paul's doing when he says, do you not know? He's appealing to common knowledge, right? He's sort of appealing to common sense. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, catch this, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Listen to the two categories. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Having been set free of sin, look at me up here for a second, you're free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. At what point were you free and not a slave? Never. I think it's true to say that slavery is just continual. It's ongoing. It's just a matter of who our master is. This is a colossal truth. What I continue to marvel at, I kind of knew this going in. That's why we called this series Colossal Truth. But I continue to marvel at the absolute, magnanimous, massive, far-reaching, sweeping statements that Paul makes in this book. He levels all of humanity for all of time with these big, sweeping categories. By way of review, first three chapters are this, that all of humanity are under sin. It's not just that we're sinning by choice, but it's that we're sinners by nature. And so again, if you sort of zoom into this, we're taking Romans in four parts. And so if you want to just sort of get a handle on, on Romans chapter 1 through 321, this is it. It's Paul laying out whether you're religious or an absolute party animal, that you are under ruin, that your life is led to ruin, and that there's no hope for you. And then, and then in 321, there's this shift in the wind. Remember that? And it's redemption. It's the fact that you are ruined and you have to get to that place. The bad news has to be spoken before you hear the good news. And so when the good news comes, you say, man, that's me. I needed that. And so that we're redeemed. We were ruined with no hope, but God paved the, the way for us that we could never pave. What did he do? He lived the life we could never live. He died the death that we all deserve. And so that's what we mean. When a Christian says, I'm redeemed, that's what the Christian means. And salvation isn't just from, but it's also to. So we're not just saved from our misery, from our darkness, from our entrapment to sin, from our brokenness, from our sorrow, but we are saved into freedom. We are saved into healing. We're saved into joy. We're saved into light. Here's what's interesting about this. It's not just that we're saved from something and into something else, but in light of this passage, a new idea came to my mind, and that is this, that we are enslaved from something and into something else. Consider this reality. The refrain of the addict, and I don't just mean substance abuse addicts, I mean the addict. The refrain of the addict is this. I can quit any time. I can quit any time. And yet, what does the addict do? They keep presenting themselves, being available to their chosen sin, whatever it is. Take the Ten Commandments for a minute. You probably don't struggle with all ten. But you go, man, if there were only eight commandments, I would nail this thing. <laughs> oh, if there's only seven or nine, I could, I could do it. But all ten, No. So lest you think addict is somewhere outside of you, I'm not talking about outside of you, I'm talking about you. So the addict avails themselves over and over and over again to to their weakness. It may turn up in words like this, I can leave him anytime I choose. Hey, we're really concerned about you. Hey, I can leave him anytime I choose. And yet what? You keep presenting yourself to that abusive person. Here's another one. I've got this under control. And your friends say, Really? doesn't look that way. I've got this under control. And then what happens? You keep presenting yourself. And here's the truth. The lies that we tell ourselves aren't really that comforting, are they? They just aren't. Not only are they not very comforting to us, they're not really fooling as many people as we think that they, that they might be. You can see, whatever you present yourself to, whatever you avail yourself to, that's who your master is. So this truth sets you free even if you don't admit you're a slave. This, this truth is here and available for you, even to those who don't admit slavery. All right, number two, put up a second finger, play, play the game with me. There you go. Number two, your, your grip is starting to, is starting to come, come to, uh, to fruition. Slaves have masters. Okay, I know that's just a basic truth, but think about this. Slaves have masters. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll, you'll, you'll serve the one and despise the other, right? It's, it's one or the other. All slaves have masters. So if slavery is ongoing, slaves have masters. I'm free, I'm my own person, I'm autonomous, no such thing. Look at verse 16 again. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, catch this word, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. If you highlight in your Bible, write in your Bible, or highlight on your phone, man, highlight the word obedient and the one you obey. Obedient and the one you obey. Slaves have masters. Friends, you are obeying someone or something. It's just true. And the Bible says there's two masters. There's God and everything else. Now this may come as a surprise to you because we're a pastor's home and so we're supposed to have some different level of, I don't know, halos or something, but um, it turns out some of my kids resist authority. Anyone else with me in that? Yeah, shocker, right? And so uh, some of our kids, as if like not all of our kids resist authority. And so we teach our kids this. We teach our kids that life is about authority. You can't get away from authority. Some of your life stories are that you ran away from home. You got out of there as far as you could. New York, San Francisco, and L.A. are filled with people who are like, what's the furthest place I could get from home? And then they get there, and what happens? There's authority. There's authority. There's head-subordinate relationships everywhere they go. So when we're talking to our kids, we, we just say, man, I love that you're resisting authority. This is on my better days, I think this way. On my worst days, I think just like everyone else would. I love that you are resisting authority and getting to be trained by someone who loves you and deeply cares for you so that you can resist me and learn gradually over time about this idea of submission, about this idea of yielding. And the biblical mandate that we put out is is basically this. And we're going to get to this, by the way, in the latter parts of Romans. But in all things that doesn't directly violate God, you're to submit to the earthly leaders. They're not outside of God's sovereign hand. And I think of the words of Jesus who says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. So when it comes to head-subordinate relationship, we talk a lot about God. But we also talk about teachers that aren't their favorite teachers. We talk about laws that aren't their favorite laws. We talk about chores and deadlines that aren't their favorite to discuss. We do that because we love them. It's kind of like we're living in two regimes between uh, the wicked and the righteous that we saw back in Malachi. and We see all through the scriptures. One regime you're born into with no choice. The other regime you're born again into. Ben laid this out a couple of weeks ago. What's the old regime? It's Adam, sin, death, law, flesh. Didn't do anything to get those. That's just the old regime. What's the new regime? Christ, righteousness, life, grace, spirit. I want you to look in your Bibles for a second, Romans chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 14. We ended last week with verse 14. What verse 14 does is is it indicates what prompts these teachings that, that he's giving to us. Here it is. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That is a huge promise. I hope you grabbed on to Romans 6.11 and Romans 6.14 last week. I hope those become daily prayers for you. God, today, I'm dead to sin. I'm going to consider that. I'm going to reckon that. I'm going to put my mind on that. And I'm alive to you in all that that means. And to have this promise that sin will have no dominion over you. And then what he does is this pattern we've been seeing over and over is, that's great news. Sin isn't my master. I don't have to listen anymore. And then Paul preempts what questions are going to come back to him. Great. Does that mean I can live however I want then? That's what he's answering. Look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. There's his phrase again. Are we just to live as we please? Some of you know this to be true more than others. Grace that would be given from God, that would just free us from slavery, but leave us to ourselves, is not kind. Grace that would free us from the enslavement but just leave us to ourselves, is not kind. Grace is that we're freed from sin and that we are enslaved to Christ. We need Christ. It's not just that we need freedom from sin and then pretty much I've got this as long as I don't have this junk in my life. We know that too well. You know, there's a certain spirit in our age that I think is all too familiar. I think that you'll kind of catch on to it as I begin to talk about it. But I've been really watching for this for about the last week and a half, the idea of authority. Um, Satan came up in our bedtime prayers the other night, and, um, and one of our kids said, well, what's Satan? Who's Satan? You know, and one of our others jumped in right away and said, Satan is a fallen angel. And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. Satan's a created being, a fallen angel. I said, what was Satan's issue? What was his great sin? You tell me, what was it? Yeah, he wanted to be the boss. He wanted to be in charge, right? So Satan came up in bedtime prayers, which is always a little dicey because you don't know how the dreams are going to go that night, but it was good. We prayed over that and thanked Jesus for his victory. I want you to jot this down, that Satan is obsessed with authority. And Satan is delusional about authority. So when you think about authority and the enemy at work, he wants to be in charge, his own boss. How did he lie to Adam and Eve? Hey, you can be your own boss, right? Authority, right at the heart of it. Go to the temptation of Jesus. Command these stones to become bread. What is that? That is a misuse of authority. Catch this. See if this is the spirit of our age. That is a misuse of authority for personal pleasure, for personal gain. Do we see any of that in in authority around us? Here's the second temptation. Throw yourself down, Jesus. That's the misuse of authority for the spectacular, for personal ego, for for there to be uh, glory coming his way. Third one is this. All these kingdoms and their glory, he says, I will give you if you bow down to me as master. Do you hear how utterly obsessed with authority, master and slavery Satan is? And how utterly delusional? He's talking to Jesus, the eternal son of God. He's delusional about what he has to give even. He's lying about that. But what he's saying is, I'll give this to you. Trying to gain control of Jesus, another characteristic we see of leadership, that it would be instead of a position used to serve other people, it would be a position used to control other people. Man, this same spirit is in leadership today. Personal gain, check. Personal glory, check. Control of people instead of serving them, check. Catch this. The same lie bombards us all the time. You're the boss. You know better. You can be your own person. Over and over and over again, that message is coming to you. Do not be deceived. Freedom and autonomy are illusions. You can just jot this down. I think it might be in your notes, just the, the, the reference. But 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, he's talking about false teachers. I want you to listen for slavery, freedom language for a second. It says, they brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. Now, catch this in verse 19. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. And I see this all the time. The very people offering freedom are themselves enslaved, just by their lifestyle, just by what pours out of their mouth. All right, hold up your third finger. Play with me. There we go. Third finger. We're starting to get a grip. Here it is. Slavery is progressive. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, there's the progressive nature... So now present yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Do you see that both presentations lead somewhere? One leads to lawlessness and then more lawlessness and then even more lawlessness. Slavery is progressive. It grows over time. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul's trying to do is show them uh, the end result of how they're living and the progressive nature of this. Again, I'm not even going to spend much time on this because we know this. From our own personal experience and from every biography you've ever seen, you can see how how this is true, that people's lives grow over time. Warren Wiersbe is a commentator. He's commenting on the, the prodigal son. Prodigal son is a brilliant example of this. He says this, but his rebellion only led him deeper into slavery. Catch this. He was the slave of wrong desire. It started there. Slavery is progressive, though. Then a slave of wrong deeds, right? James tells desire gives birth to deeds, so then it, it begins to take fruition. And finally, he became a literal slave while he's taking care of pigs. He wanted to find himself, but he lost himself. What he thought was freedom turned out to be the worst kind of slavery. It was only when he returned home and yielded to his father that he found true freedom. You know what's the really good news in all this? The same is true in reverse. That that same progression of a sort of a downward spiral into ruin also works the other way. There's a progressive nature to our slavery as, a, as slaves of Christ, that our sanctification, sanctification grows over time. Go back to the words of Jesus that I said at the very beginning in John chapter 8. Here's the condition that was set forth regarding freedom. Remember this? He said this, if, conditional, If then, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, then you'll be free. So when it comes to figuring this stuff out, you may want to just jot this down, the laws of the harvest. There's all kinds of laws in the harvest we see in Scripture, but here's one of the key ones I want to highlight right now. You plant in one season, we see this in nature, right? You want pumpkins, you don't plant them on October 15th, right? I'd make a terrible farmer. I can procrastinate sometimes. You plant in one season, you reap the harvest in another season. So you're sowing seeds right now to the spirit or to the flesh, and those will reap a harvest, right? The same kind of seed that's planted is the same kind of harvest that comes up. So when Jesus says, if you abide in my words, you're truly my disciples, it would behoove us to figure out, what does it mean to really abide in the words of Jesus? We better figure that one out. I think it means in light of Romans 6, present yourself to the word of God. Present yourself, avail yourself all the time. Why do preachers always, I could end every sermon with two applications, pray and read your Bible, and then live out what it says, maybe three. Over and over and over. I can just do that every single time. Why? Because we just keep presenting ourselves to God. We avail ourselves to God. This is what it means to be a true disciple. So for some, showing up on a Sunday was a massive, massive, huge step, huge risk. I came to a church building, I sat down, I went through, I did it again. Four months later, it's easier than the first time they came. And then after a while, this church, like many churches, will say, hey, even though we're a relatively small church, break it into smaller groups where you can really get life on life. Go to a community group. And someone, despite the pain in their chest and the anxiety and their blood pressure and all that, they go to a community group. And man, the first time was just a massive risk. And then they did it again, and they did it again, and they availed themselves, and God began to work and move in that what happens is, gradually over time, we look back at the fruit of presenting ourselves as slaves of Christ. And not only is it easier, it's joyful. I'll tell you what, this is a remarkable thing. This is the grace of God. I look forward to Sunday mornings. It's, it's, I have a hard time thinking back to a time I don't, I'm not looking forward to Sunday morning. I, I love being here. I love being with, with my, my church family. I love praising God with you. Um, and, and that, is, that is built over time, as, as you know. All right, number four, put it up. Notice it's the shortest one. See that? That means it's a short point. It's kind of a more minor point, but I'm going to give it to you. Here we go. New freedoms present new restrictions. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Do you see that there's a relationship between freedom and slavery? When you have freedoms, there's restrictions and vice versa. Verse 21, but what, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, there it is again, free and slave, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. Let me illustrate this by way of, um, my daughter was in here. Is Briley in here? Um, she bailed on church. That's good. I'll talk to her. Um, <laughs> I have a 16-year-old daughter, and um, some of you know this, but between husband and wife, there's some that are better at training their kids to drive than others. Um, my hair will continue to get more and more gray because uh, I have lots more to teach to drive, um, but it's my role in our marriage. It just works better that way. I actually really love it, but when we, um, we go out driving and when she gets her driver's license, there's a certain sense um, that she is now free to drive um, but also some restrictions come with it. So let me ask you this. When you are free to drive, when you have this new freedom called getting a driver's license, um, what, are some of the, what are some of the freedoms that you have? Just call them out. Run the yellow. Run the yellow. Thank you, Frank. And I'm glad Bradley's not here. You would run the yellow. What else? I want to. I want to go where I want to go. That's right. I don't need to depend on someone else for, for a ride. What else? One more go fast, okay. <laughs> See, this is why I mention sin every week in church. We're, we're just, we're all a bunch of lawbreakers. Um, now, those are some of my freedoms. What am I restricted by? Hopefully you know some of these. Traffic laws, Traffic laws speed limit, okay, the rule followers are speaking up now. What? Seatbelts, Seat belts, right. Those pesky lines that you're supposed to stay in, in right? Um, so there are certain restrictions, there are certain freedoms that come with that. Now, um, just because there are certain freedoms to it, do I get to drive however I want? No. Um, have you ever driven in a different country that isn't as organized here? Okay? I'll give you two. I think, I think India might be the pinnacle from just pictures and video and, and uh, um, Amazing Race, just video from that. But I've been to Ethiopia and China. Ethiopia and China, if everyone's free to drive as they want, you know what happens? Everyone's freedom gets restricted. We're all slave to a traffic jam. Because no one's one's following any laws there. They're not even suggestions there. Lions and lights are just, you know, I don't even know why they're there. Don't even keep them up because no one pays attention to them. So there's a certain relationship between freedom and restriction. Let me give you one more, which we'll explore next week on Easter from Romans 7. But think about the single person and the married person, okay? What are the freedoms of a single person? Call them out. You sleep on whatever side of the bed you want. That's right. <laughs> some marriage counseling on that one later. On, I can tell. That's good. What else? Dating. What? Dating. Dating. That's right. You can date You can date people. What else? Go where you want when you want. Go where you want when you got it. you don't check in with anyone. One more. No honey-do list. No honey-do list. That's right. <laughs> and the people said amen. Um, all right. What are, some, what are some restrictions for a single person? Celibacy. yeah. If you're a, if you're a disciple of Jesus, absolutely. What else? You cook it, you eat it. You cook it, you eat it. Okay. <laughs> All right, maybe a little harder now. Let's go to marriage for a second. What are the freedoms in marriage? Some great freedoms. What is it? We need to do a marriage series. Come on, people. <laughs> Companionship. What? Companionship. Companionship. Absolutely. That's right. There's a certain freedom. That's right. That the covenant in marriage just lets you be yourself. Unfiltered. Yeah. Okay. How about restrictions in marriage? What are restrictions? One woman. One woman. Right? The, the, the freedom of a single person no longer applies. Right? Other restrictions. That's right. All of a sudden, you have someone else. So, so we know this. We see this in, in life that new freedoms present new restrictions, right? And so, so it is with Christ um, and and uh, the Christian walk. All right, let me let me get to, <clears throat> um, let me get to the the last one. Um, put your thumb out like this, okay? Once, once, you, once you're trying to grab something without your thumb, it's kind of hard, right? The second you grab that thumb, it really grabs hold of this. This one's really important. Here it is. Slave is a core identity of every Christian. Slave is a core identity of the Christian. When you ask the question, who are you? What you see about yourself, what you think about yourself, your identity informs everything else. It is such a crucial question. Now, this isn't the only identity we have in Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about being the spouse of Jesus. Okay, So spouse, child, uh, all these other uh, things add some layers to it. But I think slave is largely missing from the modern conversation about Christianity, isn't it? Um, To be Christian is to be a slave. This is unmistakable from Scripture, and it's understated. Not from scripture, it's understated just from the amount of blogs, sermons, books that you can buy. People don't talk about this. Let me show you a couple of things. Number one is the Bible text. Uh, The Greek word that we see here, some of you know this, but doulos is the word. That's the word for slave. There's a Hebrew word and and there's a Greek word. And here's what's interesting. Almost all the time when doulos is used in the English translation, it is translated as servant. This began with the King James. Servant or bondservant. Here's what's interesting about that. There are something like six perfectly good, capable Greek words that communicate the idea of servant. What's the difference between a servant and a slave? I've thought about this, so I'll tell you. A servant is hired. A slave is owned. Right? At its very core, a servant is hired and a slave is owned. So there's a certain soft cell in our brains even as we read servant, servant, servant instead of slave. The early church leaders, let me throw out a couple names, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Augustine, all in their writings referred to themselves as a slave of Jesus Christ. They carried on the biblical tradition of using the blunt, shocking word slaves. How about the martyrs? I'm always inspired by martyrs. Martyrs are people who died for their faith. There was a young martyr in the time of Rome, and he was imprisoned and tortured by Roman authorities, and his only reply to his captors about what's going on and trying to get him to recant is this, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. They couldn't get him to say anything else. They ended up sensing him to death and drowning him in the sea. And he never recanted. He never said anything except, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. What a powerful picture. This is unmistakable in scripture, and yet it's uh, understated. You know, the implications if you miss this, think about your perspectives and your priorities and how rocked they are if you got led to Christ under different pretense. Hey, come to Jesus Christ. He needs associates. He needs partners in the firm to help him get the work done. Imagine your shock and horror when Jesus makes some demand of your life if you thought you were coming on as an associate. Or how about coming on to the presidential cabinet? I've got some role in the presidential White House, even if it's intern. Hey, I'm in. And then all of a sudden, boss man makes some demand of your life that sounds slave-like instead of, hired, intern-like, and you freak out at that, and you don't understand it, and you think he must mean something else. If you understand yourself at your core that I am a slave of Jesus Christ, I was a slave of sin, I am willingly and gladly a slave of Jesus Christ now, man, it alters a lot of conversations. Romans chapter 1, Paul God's special chosen leader of leaders. He's among the highest educated people in his time. He climbs to the apex of his profession called being a Pharisee. He has been spoken directly to by Jesus Christ. He's been called by Jesus Christ. He wrote half the New Testament. He's an apostle. And how does he start the book of Romans? He says this, I am a devoted slave of Christ Jesus. Dulos. there's the word. Here's what's interesting. Many of your translations call that servant. I'll tell you who gets it right. New Living Translation says slave. The message says a devoted slave. Verse 22, look at it. Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become, most of your translations get this right, and have become slaves of God. Who's the best and most important example to look to? It's always Jesus. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. So you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a doulos, of a slave, is how New Living Translation translates it, and was born as a human being. Not my will, but yours be done. Sounds like a slave. He came not as a master to, to be served, but a servant to die. Look at verse 17 in our passage. And I close with this. Let me have the band come on up. Verse 17 says this, Thanks be to God. And then he says, Obedient from the heart. I want to pair those two phrases. Thanks be to God. Obedient from the heart. In your notes this morning, there were too many to list. So I just left it uh, in in your thing so you didn't have to do a bunch of writing. We've been ending each sermon almost with What does God do in this passage, and what are we supposed to do out of this passage? And we don't want to mix those two up. But in 17, I love it, that it's thanks be to God. God's the one who's doing this work, and yet we have become obedient from the heart, willful slaves, freely choosing to follow Jesus Christ. And look at the list in your notes. What has God done to a Christian? Well, we died to sin. Our old self was crucified. We're dead to sin but alive to God. We've been brought from death to life. Um, sin's no longer our master. We've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. That is all done for you. You don't work for that. You don't strive for that. You don't keep churning so that that stays afloat. And then what do we do? Look at verse 12 in your notes. It just says, do not let sin reign. You know what that means? It means that we have a choice. Sin's no longer your master. It's not your dominion anymore. Remember the end of... Uh, of um, of that movie about uh, uh, Unbroken, the movie Unbroken, where he's in the Japanese internment camp and the war is over and he's been declared, You're a free person now. You no longer have to listen to the prison guards. That's our picture with slavery. Verse 13, it says, Do not offer your the parts of your body to sin, but offer yourselves. To God, you being here this morning, hear me, you being here this morning is presenting yourself, as it were, to God. It's being available to sit under some teaching and to worship with the people. Finally, it says this, Offer the parts of your body, in verse 19, in slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness. We're going to sing a song right now called Take My Life. And it talks about hands and feet and voice and intellect and will and heart being presented to God. And as we sing this, let it be more than a little ritual a church where we sing a few lyrics. Make it be a prayer. And then keep in step with the Spirit. The goal would be that we live out what we sing in these next few minutes. God, thank you for modeling this for us. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you. Thank you for the enslavement that we have to you. We celebrate you as a good master. We pray, God, that you would shape and heal and correct broken places, broken views of how we see this. In Jesus' name, amen.